Our holy God and our Father, we ask that you would be with our pastor as he comes before us and before you to expound the word for us. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be open and ready to receive the gifts that you have put for us today. O Spirit, would you come and turn our hearts away from the distractions of the world, of our vocations, and everything that is weighing on our minds, and turn them only to you, that we might hear and be blessed. We ask these things in the name of your Holy Son. Amen. You turn with me in, in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 4, beginning the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel this morning. And, and as you will recall, it's a good opportunity as we turn the corner to a new chapter to kind of think about what has been the emphasis of Mark up to this point. And we would have to answer that question very simply with this. He, he's wrestling with the question of who is Jesus? And, and the answer that he wants us to grasp and, and, and internalize is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not merely a teacher. He's not merely a rabbi. He is not merely a miracle worker. He is all those things, but he is truly the Son of the living God. And, and then having answered that, what has been offered to us as Jesus' primary activity. When Jesus is the Son of God, what does he do? What's his primary focus? And we'd have to answer an honest reading of Mark's gospel, be teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching. I mean, we see this immediately following our Lord's baptism. What does he do? He proclaims the kingdom. He goes from there, he goes to the to Capernaum. He goes back to his hometown and he begins teaching. In fact, Mark tells us, as one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in, at the end, near the end of Mark chapter 1, we see this. Jesus says, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And then in Mark chapter 2, he begins that chapter with this statement, many were gathered together and there was, so that there was no more room. Not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. And of course you remember the story where the friends of the paralytic dug open a hole in the roof and lowered him down. But Jesus was preaching the word of God. And then in Mark chapter 3, we're told that he appoints the twelve for the very purpose of following him and doing what? Preaching. Preaching the word of God. Now, up to this point, Jesus has not only been preaching, but he's been preaching very plainly, very clearly. Nothing is obscured. Everything is laid out straight and narrow before the crowds. And he emphasizes the necessity of faith, the necessity of repentance in order to enter into the kingdom of God. But in Mark chapter 4, something shifts. Something changes, and even to those who were closest to him on the scene, they're next to him, hearing what he's teaching, recognize something's different now. Jesus begins to speak in parables, and it's significant. His disciples notice the change. They ask him about the change. Both Mark and Matthew record how the, G how the disciples come to Jesus privately and say, 
what gives? Why the change? Why are you speaking now in parables? So as we read the text today, this is sort of an introductory uh, message. You, you probably will see in your, your copy of God's Word those editorial titles added in by the publishers of your Bible. They weren't there. But in mine happens to say the parable of the sower. We'll look at the actual content of that parable next week. I'm going to read the text. But what I want to do today is look at, under the title, Many Things in Parables, we want to wrestle with that why question. Why parables? I mean, it's the same question the disciples asked, and I think it's fair for us, as his present-day disciples, to ask the same question. And spend some time thinking about, before we dive into the parables, why? Jesus speaks in a lot of different ways. He, he, he accomplishes signs and wonders. He, he, he's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's spoken very plainly in many respects, and here he speaks in parables. Why? Why the change? So first of all, I want to look at basically three, a three-point outline, pretty simple. What is a parable? I don't want to assume we know. What is it a parable? What, what, what constitutes a parable? Because we're told here multiple times in the text that he speaks to them in parables. What does that mean? And then secondly, the why question. Why? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of the parables? And thirdly, what's the blessing that's revealed in those parables? So if you want a simple outline, definition, purpose, and blessing. Definition, purpose, and blessing. Here's, here's the summary in, or the sermon in summary form, if you want it this way. Jesus teaches in parables to demonstrate this fact. His kingdom is established by God's sovereign grace withholding the mystery of the kingdom from some men and opening the eyes and ears of others by the power of his spirit. So here the kingdom comes. Jesus proclaims clearly. John the Baptist had gone before him. Make way for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus comes and says, repent. The kingdom is at hand. And yet, Many do not listen. Many do not obey. Many do not turn. Many do not believe. And the answer, the question is, why? Why would anybody reject this message? And the parables help us to understand this. So let's read the Word of God. I'm going to read Mark chapter 4 beginning of verse 1 down to 13, but our focus today will be on verses 1 and 2 and then 10 to 12. We'll read through the parable, but we'll, we'll skip over the content of the parable for today. We'll, we'll come back, Lord willing, next week there. This is the Word of God, beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. 
Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our first question, and and it'll be a brief section here in the sermon, but what is a parable? What is a parable? Well, often on on words like this, I I go to the old Webster's Dictionary. Uh, Like the the Webster's 1828 is available online. It's, It's a helpful definition or helpful dictionary in a lot of ways, and it often draws upon the scriptures themselves. In fact, here's the definition, to set together one thing with another a fable or allegorical relation or representation of something real in life or nature from which a moral is drawn for instruction. So one of the things we notice when when our Lord Jesus speaks in parables, this is not a genre that he has made up. This is not something that Jesus has innovated. Parables have been around since in all of human history. In fact, we find a number of parables in the scriptures. In fact, even in the Old Testament. There are illustrations of parables from the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of them. In Judges chapter 9, and you may recall a couple years back, we we worked through the book of of the Judges. And in chapter 9, a man by the name of Abimelech is, is raised up and appointed by God as judge. And he tells a parable to the men of Shechem about, a, about trees electing or choosing a king. And he uses the parable to illustrate that he's not in earthly terms, the first choice, shall we say. He's not the big, mighty oak. He's more like a bramble. He tells this parable. Well, then perhaps maybe the most famous of all the parables, particularly in the one in the, in the Old Testament, is the, the parable that Nathan, the prophet Nathan, tells to King David. David, of course, had sinned with Bathsheba, and committed murder with Uriah. And Nathan the prophet goes to David and tells him a parable. Tells him a parable about a rich man who goes and steals the little baby ewe lamb of a poor man. Takes it for himself. And David, enraged at this, pronounces blood guilt on this man, pronounces the death sentence on this man, and Nathan famously says, Thou art the man. And David was cut to the core. He immediately recognized his own sin and by God's grace turned in repentance. So we see these, these, these parables, which are physical realities. They're true things in the common sphere, but they make moral or spiritual points. And of course, parables are not confined to the Bible. Surely you are aware of, of, of works like Aesop's fables, for example. 
in the common world, the secular world. These are fables that, that illustrate, even to, the, to children and adults alike, more profound moral truths, but told with simple stories. So that is what a, what a parable is. It's simply taking something that's common and known and using that to illustrate or demonstrate a moral or spiritual point. And so we will find in the scriptures Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of God is like. And then he goes on to illustrate from there. And so he does something very similar here, where he says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And implicit in the teaching is this is, this is the, the word of God going forth in the kingdom is like unto this illustration or this parable. So having a definition in our mind, we need to think through what, what is the purpose of a parable? What is Jesus seeking to accomplish by speaking this way? And notice again how the practice of teaching in parables strikes the disciples as different. It marks a change in the speech of his ministry, the teaching of his ministry. It marks a, a change in the manner of his teaching. Look down in Mark chapter 4, verse 10. When, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Now, in Mark's version, they seem to be asking, what does this mean? But in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples' question takes on a little bit different angle. They say to him, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? In fact, Matthew goes on to describe how he speaks only from this point forward to the crowd in parables. So he speaks exclusively in parables. And the disciples, you've got, you got to wonder. I mean, it's a good question. It's an honest question where they're scratching their heads. Maybe they're even seeing the response of the crowd. Maybe they're seeing the puzzled looks. Maybe they're seeing the crowd beginning to thin. Maybe they're seeing other responses that puzzle them. We see in Mark's gospel that they seem even themselves to be struggling with the content of his teaching. What does this mean, teacher? And so it's a, it's a normal question for them to ask. It's this kind of question that probably, had we been there, we would have asked the same. Or up to this point, you've spoken pretty plainly. In fact, we don't have these large blocks of teaching recorded for us in Mark's gospel, but when we harmonize the gospels together and we put the chronology in place, what we find out is this, is, this comes after the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus doesn't speak in parables there, does he? He speaks very, very plainly. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he says things like, You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man lusts after a woman in his heart. It's very plain teaching, isn't it? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if a man has anger in his heart against his brother, he is, a guilt, he is guilty of violating the commandment. Very clear, very plain teaching. Chapter 10 of Matthew, there's another major discourse. And in these discourses, there's a growing theme that develops of us versus them. You who are in the kingdom versus those who are out. And of course, in Mark chapter 3, we saw that even with respect to Jesus' own natural family, where Jesus says, these, those who are listening to my teaching, those who are sitting at my feet, these are my true family. Now suddenly, Jesus is teaching in parables. 
in Matthew 13, verse 34, all these things, Matthew tells us, Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So again, the disciples take note. There's a sharp turn. Why do you speak to them now in parables? And here's here's the answer. The parables are given by our Lord to explain this dilemma. The, the, The apostles are observing, the disciples are observing this dilemma. The crowd, the people, the Jews are being confronted by a never be heard uh, by a never heard from before kind of authority and they're witnessing never seen before acts of healing of casting out demons of healing leopards of opening the eyes of the blind restoring the walking to the lame and and why do so many people remain indifferent to that in fact, why are some responding with hostility? I mean, Jesus is casting out demons. The, the, the lame man took up his bed and walked, and some responded not with joy, not with faith, but with anger. He healed the, the hand, a withered hand of a man. Luke tells us it was his right hand, it was his livelihood. And some responded with anger for that, rather than faith. And the parables help us to understand why that is. Have you ever wondered the same thing? Have you ever wondered why, why some eagerly hear the word of God? Eagerly hear the good news of Jesus Christ? And rejoice in it while others either shrug their shoulders and blow it off? They respond in anger, take offense. And the parables explain in part what we've already observed and what Mark has been so careful to write down for us. There's there's this growing division between those who are in the kingdom and those who are out of the kingdom. Between those who believe and those who do not believe. Between a brother and sister and mother by faith and those who have really no relation to him at all. And it's important to note that, that, even, that even the answer to the disciples' question, why do you teach them in parables? Take note of the fact that that was given to them privately. The answer to that question was answered privately. So what is the purpose of the parables? In short, the purpose of the, of the parables is to exclude. It's to exclude, to prevent some from understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God. Does that strike you as odd? Is that contrary to what you've kind of thought? I know growing up, I was taught. or Maybe I just assumed this. Maybe I wasn't taught it. I don't really remember. I can't be sure. But I thought that the parables were told by Jesus in order to simplify complex things and make them accessible and easy to understand. That's what I thought. Turned out I was wrong about that. That's not the point of the parables, and it's not what the Scriptures teach us about parables. The parables are not designed to simplify the truth of something. They use very simple concepts. And so the man is without excuse. I mean, you don't have to be a farmer to understand how seeds work and good soil works, right? You don't have to be a a household manager to understand what a good steward does and what a bad steward does. 
You don't have to be an expert in ancient Near East weddings to recognize a parable about virgins with oil in their lamps and other virgins who didn't bring oil for their lamps. These use ordinary things and common sense kinds of, of things, and yet, in spiritual terms, we find there isn't common sense, is there? And, and we're still puzzled by that sometimes. The parables were designed by Jesus to exclude. Notice, down in verse 12, or verse 11, he said to them, to you, speaking to this inner circle, the 12 and these others with them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. Listen to the very important phrase, so that. That's a purpose statement. In order that, or so that, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And what's emerging in our Lord's teaching is an inescapable and a glorious truth. And here it is. God has enabled, by his divine power, he has enabled some to hear and to see. And others he has not. God, by his grace, according to his own mercy, has allowed, enabled some to hear and to see. And others, he's allowed to remain in their own darkness. And both Mark and Matthew record that Jesus, record, that he, Jesus quotes here from Isaiah chapter 6, and it's significant. And we're seeing a moment that John in his gospel also references this same text. And, and they use Isaiah 6, Jesus uses Isaiah 6 to demonstrate that he, in fact, is the king that Isaiah saw in a vision enthroned in glory. And we're going to read that, that Isaiah 6 text here in just a moment, but you can go ahead and turn there. What's happening in Isaiah is that the Lord is sending Isaiah to his own people, his own rebellious and stubborn people, and saying, go and preach to them, but they're not going to hear proclaim the Lord's covenant to them, but they won't listen. Let's go to Isaiah and read that text. It's an important text, because, and Jesus references it here to make a very crucial spiritual point. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in a minute, we're going to see where John, the Apostle John, says this is Jesus on the throne. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken, from the, taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, 
Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Now sometimes commentators get confused at this point, and the point of contention is, is understandable. It's the apparent conflict between man's responsibility to hear and believe and God's electing grace by which a man or a woman or a child is given the ability to do that. And sometimes we, we feel, humanly speaking, we feel this tension. There's not a tension in the Scriptures. There's not a tension in the mind of God, but this tension that we feel between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And we can acknowledge as we're talking to, to, to friends, as we're talking to people who, who are wrestling with this doctrine of divine election, we can acknowledge that it does feel like a tension between man's responsibility, his culpability, his guilt, and yet he's not able to understand and discern the things of God unless the Lord causes him to be born again. And in this gospel, I reference the gospel, the Apostle John would also quote from this same text. Listen to what John says. This is in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now he's talking about the Jews. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John, on, under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, said, he interprets rightly for us Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah goes in a vision, he sees the Lord enthroned in glory. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in glory, sending out Isaiah to go and preach on his behalf, but also telling him some will hear and yet not hear. Some will see and yet not see. See, the Bible portrays absolutely no conflict 
whatsoever between man's responsibility and God's sovereign election. Between God's extending mercy to whom he will and withholding that mercy from those whom he has not chosen. Now, perhaps one of the most dramatic expressions of this we find in Exodus chapter 7 and the whole exchange with Pharaoh. And, and what's, if you read that carefully, you might have found phrases that, that maybe puzzled you at times. Because as you read through the narrative, you will see alternately, sometimes it's said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But other times it's said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Was it Pharaoh who hardened himself, or was it God that hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's the same. It's one and the same. See, here's, here's the explanation for that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by default. As a man born in sin, that was his default position. And you know what? It's our default position. It's the default position of every man, woman, boy, or girl who's ever been born outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're born at enmity with God. We're born with wills who are opposed to God. So our hearts, there doesn't have to be some external work to harden us. What does God do to harden Pharaoh's heart? Nothing. He leaves him to his own sin. He leaves him to his own stubbornness. He leaves him to his own stiff-neckedness. Can I make up a word? And that's what's happening here with the parables. Jesus says, in order that Isaiah might be fulfilled, and particularly, to ethnic Israel who had rejected and who were in the process actively of rejecting her Messiah. Jesus says, I'm speaking in parables so that Isaiah might be fulfilled. Seeing, they would not see. And hearing, they would not hear. God simply withholds the light of his gospel. He withholds his illuminating and life-creating spirit. And man then is justly, justly condemned before God for his own stubbornness, his own blindness, his own deafness. And Jesus makes use of parables to begin to explain this mysterious fact. Despite the fact that the kingdom has been revealed in very dramatic ways, powerful ways, visible ways to men on earth, again, right there in front of their own eyes, in the hearing of their own ears, Many don't respond in faith. Many do not believe. In fact, the majority do not hear and do not believe. Many continue in either a cold indifference to Christ or kind of a curiosity at his miracles. I mean, we go see the show. We go see, it's kind of cool to see the, the lame man get up and walk. It's kind of, kind of cool to see the man thrashing around with a demon and then get delivered from that and, and be able to walk upright and in his own mind. That's, that's entertaining, so they will go and see that. Others respond in anger, bitterly opposed. And we have to understand that both indifference and open opposition are both hostile acts against the kingdom of God. Bitter, angry opposition 
or cold indifference are both hostile acts against the kingdom of God. So the question that comes from the text to us is where are you on this matter? As you have heard with your own ears the teaching of Christ, as you have in a sense seen with your own eyes through the printed word, his works of miracles, his signs, those things that attested to him truly as the Son of God. Where are you? Are you indifferent to that word proclaimed in your hearing? Have you grown dull? Are you bored with it all? Are you a little offended? Because the Lord commands of you things that in your flesh you don't really want? Don't dismiss the, the joyful, the hopeful message that's here as well, though. It's not all doom and gloom. It is, it is crucial for his disciples early in their ministry to understand that it is only by God's electing grace, it is only through the power of his spirit that anyone will hear their preaching and believe it. Just as it was true with the prophets of old. But there's also a very joyful message here. God has granted the supreme privilege of hearing, of seeing, of believing to those who will humble themselves and confess the Lord as King, the Lord as Christ, the Lord as Messiah. So that's what I want to consider in the last place. We've seen a definition of parables. We've seen kind of the why question. What's the purpose of parables? Well, it was to exclude. It is to exclude those for whom God had not given the mystery of the kingdom. But there also is a tremendous blessing revealed here. In verse 11 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. Saints, don't let that phrase just, just fall over you and not produce something in you. If you are in Christ, He has opened your eyes, He has opened your ears and declared to you, shown to you, secret things that your natural mind could never have come up with, could never have understood, could never have fathomed, could never have comprehended. He's made Himself known to you in the person and work of his own son. Now it's interesting, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 13, after he quotes Isaiah, he says this. Jesus says this to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and didn't see it. And they hear what you hear. And didn't hear it. I mean, imagine faithful Moses, David, Abraham, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the prophets who labored and toiled faithfully, and they didn't get to see what you see. They didn't get to hear what you hear. And yet we despise that. By our actions, we, we despise that. By our lack of actions, we despise that. 
by our inattention to the ordinary means of grace. We, we demonstrate that these things are, are not held as, as valuable and precious to us. You get to hear and see what we hear and see. We've been given an access that even the saints of old longed for. Our Lord contrasts us, His beloved, His chosen ones. He contrasts us with those whose hearts remain hard and those whose ears remain plugged up and those whose eyes remain clouded in darkness. And He pronounces upon you, saints, if you are in Christ, a blessing. He proclaims to you it's a privilege to know what you know, to see what you see, to hear what you hear. You haven't earned this. This is the gift given to you by God's sovereign grace. And number one, don't dare despise that. Don't dare to think that's a small thing. But also, on the other hand, don't dare take credit for it. Don't think to yourself how wise you are or how insightful you are or how intelligent you are because you figured this out. The whole, person, the whole point of the parables is, let's give you something really simple, children, and you can't understand it, can you? Because it must be spiritually discerned. So if you have understood, it's because God has shined His light upon you. He's been gracious to you. And so to the degree that you now see these things, praise God for that. To the extent that you now hear, will you offer a thanksgiving to God? By the measure of the softening of your heart and the understanding that you have gained, exalt and praise and give glory to your triune God for the Father's electing grace, for the Son's atoning work, for the Spirit's quickening and enabling power, and the Spirit's application of the benefits of the redemption purchased by Christ to you. And Jesus extends the blessing and the privilege, I think, even higher, though. He makes a comparison that's, that's even more striking, not only to those who, are, those who are in the kingdom versus those who are out of the kingdom, but Jesus compares our privilege, those who would actually hear and believe his gospel, he compares us even to the believing saints of old and recognizes the superior light we have. The blessing we have of hearing and seeing is even greater than Abraham, or Moses, or Joshua, or Ruth, or Esther, or David, and all the other righteous saints. I mean, think this thing through. We now see and hear, in a sense, the resurrected Lord and Messiah. They saw him only by faith. They didn't even know his name, other than the prophetic record that his name shall be called Emmanuel. They didn't know what to make of that. We hear him through his word preached. We see him in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We see the fruit of his work in establishing his churches in all places and calling men and women and boys and girls to faith and repentance out of every nation and tongue and tribe and people. Boys and girls, Listen to me, young people, listen to me. You, you may not think it is a particularly big privilege to be in an ordinary place like this. To be in an ordinary chair around an ordinary family and 
ordinary people with all of our faults and flaws. But you cannot imagine the privilege that you have in your homes and in this place to hear the word of God proclaimed to you. To have the promises of the gospel opened up for you. To see your parents walking in faith right in front of you. To see their examples. To see the examples of other men and women in in your church. That's a great privilege, a great blessing. But as Paul says, thinking about the the Jews who grew up with the word of God, and and he asks them, is there an advantage for them? It's much in every way. They have the oracles of God. They have the promises of God. So there's a big advantage. But he says, are we Jews any better off? If you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not believe these things, then you're no better off than the worst of the Gentiles. So children, you have a great advantage. But if you do not believe the gospel, if you do not put your faith in Christ, You don't have any advantage. Your advantage is for nothing. Apostle Peter must have been thinking about this event, must have been thinking about not just this event, but other times when Jesus taught about these things. And to think about the blessing. And and, and you can, in your mind, quickly kind of go through Peter's biography. You you, you know the height of his uh, revelation and his success and the depths of his failings. And yet Peter recognized something. He recognized everything that he was as a redeemed apostle was by the grace and gift of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter remembered that. And so in 1 Peter 1, as he's writing to those who had been scattered from their homes, many who had lost everything for the sake of the gospel, and he writes to those people, and beginning in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You hear what Peter's saying? Holy Abraham would sit by the fire at night and meditate in his heart when these things would come to pass. When will this seed that I was promised save my people? David meditated upon it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, they searched, according to Peter, and inquired carefully, when will these things happen? When will they be? And Jesus speaks in parables to demonstrate that for some, it will never be. And to those who do receive sight, spiritually speaking, who do receive ears to hear, 
only because God has been gracious to them and given the gift to them by His Spirit. Peter says the holy prophets of old, and not even that, even the angels in heaven searched into these things and wondered. Can you imagine some of the conversations among the angels? Because angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're, om- they're not omnipresent. They can't be in every place at one time. And so angels did not know the full redemptive plan of God. They don't know the full mind of God. And, and we, it, it's imaginative, but we could consider, what were those conversations like among the angels? When do you think God's going to do this? He's promised. We know he's faithful. We know he doesn't ever let one, one promise fall short. When's he going to do this? I wonder how he's going to do it. How will he accomplish these promises? And see, saints, we have the whole counsel of God made known to us. We, we have the mysteries of the kingdom expanded to us by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who continued to preach. And they preached according to the Holy Spirit sent to them from heaven, just as Jesus had promised. So, I challenge the young people to think about how significant the privilege they have of receiving this word is. But those of you who have walked with Christ for some time, do you take it as a small thing? Do you count this as a privilege? in your own homes, to be able to open the Word of God and understand it. Sometimes we, we think with a kind of hubris that that's certain pride, that, we, we, that that is to our credit, that we're able to read and understand the Word of God. As if we're reading a blog post or reading a newspaper article. We open the scriptures and the fact that God has given us understanding, the the fact that God convicts you of sin and shows you in his own perfect mirror who you truly are. Do you count that as a privilege and a gift that you know such things? And then having seen the darkness of your own thoughts, the darkness of your own motives, and and then to discover from the scriptures that that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, who is able to save you to the uttermost and offers you by the power of his spirit the ability to flee to him again and again and again. You count that a privilege? An immeasurable blessing? Or do we despise it as some small thing? By his grace, we have an eternal privilege of knowing and and having fellowship with the triune God. And so Jesus is teaching us here as we begin next week looking at the parable of the sower in in specifics, we need to understand the parables themselves are are designed to explain the kingdom as defined and and established by God's sovereign grace. And, And that in doing so, the Spirit bestows light, bestows sight, bestows hearing only to those chosen by the Father. Only those given that supreme privilege of understanding and receiving his son. So how do we, as God's people, think about these things? How how do we apply these things? As he speaks many things in parables, as he intentionally excludes some, 
and by his spiritual might includes others, how do we, how do we apply this? Let me give you four, four areas of application. First, recognize that the law of sin remains within us in part. Even those of us who are in Christ are still prone to a hardness of heart. Amen? Even if you are in Christ, even if you are growing and maturing, you still wrestle with a hardness of heart. I still wrestle with a hardness of heart. A dullness of ears, a blindness of eyes that remains. Isn't that true? We need ongoing repentance. We need the ongoing grace of faith to believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ alone has given a sure oath that he will not lose even one of us. If you are in the kingdom of heaven, by virtue of Christ's work and your faith in him and that work, then you will never be lost. So dear ones, meditate upon the grace of repentance that you have received. Meditate upon the fact that God has opened your eyes, that God has unplugged your ears, that God has given you understanding and the ability to renew your repentance and to seek an increase in your faith. So application number one is don't neglect the application of this because you're in Christ. Don't think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about dullness of ears. I don't have to worry about deafness or blindness. No more. Well, hopefully you know better than that. Secondly, because it is God alone who gives grace to hear, because God alone gives ears to hear and eyes to see, we need to call upon him in prayer. See, the focus of Jesus' ministry was teaching and preaching. There was never a better teacher or preacher than Jesus Christ. The content of his preaching was always perfect. It never could have been said better or phrased better, and yet some disbelieved. If that's true... For the best preacher who ever lived, how much more is it true for the one you got? How much more is it true for the most common and ordinary minister of the gospel? And this is why Paul, in many of his letters, asked specifically for prayer, because Paul understood this reality. He understood that nothing was going to be fruitful in his ministry unless the people of God prayed, unless God opened the windows of heaven and poured his spirit out to grant understanding, to give ears to hear and eyes to see. Which is why Jesus closed that parable in Mark chapter nine or chapter 4, verse 9, with he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To those whom God's... those who God has given open ears, take advantage of that. Don't neglect that. Don't ignore it. If you can understand the word of God today, don't turn away from it. If you can see with spiritual eyes what the word of God is teaching, don't blink. Don't shut your eyes to it. 
but it also encourages us, if this is true, and it is, if it's God alone who gives grace to see and grace to hear, then how should that affect our prayers for our children? We want to speak the gospel to them. We, we must speak the gospel to them. We must explain the law of God to them and show them from the scriptures where they are falling short. And we offer them the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But if we're not bathing those, those conversations in prayer, will they ever bear fruit? They cannot, can they? Because your children, just like you, have natural eyes and natural ears who are not able to discern spiritual things. How should this affect our, our prayers for our neighbors, for our family, for a lost world all around us? You know, it's, 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 I'm often struck, even in the middle of a sermon, and it's, it's, any preacher will tell you this, there's multiple audio tracks going at any one time during a sermon. And, as I, and I look out and I see, we have this big plate glass window and I watch cars driving by and people at 60 miles an hour going to hell and I don't pray. I don't pray as if I really believe they're perishing unless God intervenes. There's no natural remedy to that. There's no human answer to that dilemma. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our community. We pray for our, our city, our county, our state. We desperately need the illuminating grace of the Spirit of God each and every time we encounter the Word of God. So we must pray not only for the lost, but we pray for each other. Do we pray, do you pray, that your brothers and sisters who are mature in Christ will still hear the Word of God, that God will open their eyes to things that they have not yet understood before, open their ears to things they've not really heard before, I mean, how often have you, even as a mature believer, heard something in a sermon or read something in the scriptures and, wow, I haven't really thought about that before. Praise God that I can see that now. And I didn't see it before. But those things are only spiritually discerned. So we pray for each other. We recognize that, that only our sight only comes by, through spiritual eyes. Our hearing only comes through spiritual ears. We must pray for those things. Third, thirdly, third application. We need to encourage and pray for and support clarity in gospel preaching. We need to encourage clarity in gospel preaching. Jesus spoke in parables with the intention of excluding, but that is not our task, is it? It is not our task to discern who is elect and who is not. It is not our task to predetermine who should hear, or who might hear, or who will hear, and those who will not. Our task is to speak as plainly and clearly as we can and appeal to the sinner to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul to the Colossian church, and he speaks about this same mystery that Jesus references here at the same time, Paul says in Colossians 4, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul says, pray that God would open a door. In another place, 
Paul says, pray for clarity, that I would speak as I ought to speak. Our Lord spoke in parables with the intention of excluding, but that is not our job. Our job is to speak as plainly and as clearly as we can and to pray for those ministering to us that they would speak clearly. Because we recognize the headwinds against us, don't we, in understanding things? How hard it is, really, to understand the Word of God. And so we need clarity in teaching and preaching. We need clarity from the Spirit of God. And we ought to pray accordingly. Lastly, and I'll close here, if these things are true, we need to submit ourselves regularly and frequently to the reading and especially the hearing of God's Word. We need to submit ourselves regularly to the, to the reading and especially the preaching of God's Word. We, we must not presume upon God's grace by which He has given us already a measure of seeing and hearing. Don't be satisfied with what you've already seen and heard. Even if you've walked with Christ for 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 years, do you know for all of eternity you will be learning something new? The wisdom and the mind and the depths of God's understanding is such that for all of eternity we will never get to the bottom of that well. And yet, sometimes Christians think in this life they've already learned enough. They already understand enough. And we're too easily satisfied. Rather than leaning in and pursuing and saying, Holy Spirit, will you give me more? Will you give me more of Christ? Will you give me a greater understanding? Will you give me a greater uh, insight into the depth of my own sin, to the infinite well of mercy proclaimed to me in the gospel? Don't be satisfied with whatever portion you think you already have. Seek more. And, and do that by the means that God has given to us. We must pursue the kingdom of God through the means that he's given to us at every opportunity, not neglecting those things and encouraging all the more, encouraging one another all the more, especially as we see the day approaching. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful Thankful that you have made yourself known. Lord, forgive us for thinking too little of the grace that we have received to understand even what we might consider the most simple things of the Bible. Help us to grasp and, and be convinced of urgent and pressing need we have for your Spirit's power to work in us and among us so that we can exhort one another to greater understanding, to greater wisdom, to greater devotion and worship of our triune God. We ask this for Christ's namesake and for the good of all of your people.